Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. Happy New Year, and welcome to any new listeners. Just a reminder that we recently wrapped up a few shows here on the on our podcast, recapping and discussing The White Lotus on HBO, The Peripheral on Amazon Prime, and of course, last week, just wrapping up the finale of the excellent FX slash Hulu drama, Fleischman is in Trouble. Of those three shows, it seems like the Fleischman show is the one that has found the smallest audience among the public, but I do really highly recommend that. So if you have recently signed up for a Hulu subscription over the holidays, definitely do catch this excellent show, which kind of got lost in the wash of prestige shows here at the end of the year. Didn't make many top 10 lists because it just showed up so late to the party. Something that I think happened similarly to another brilliant show that came out at the end of last year, Station Eleven. Speaking of the best of, we also, Sona, my sister and I, have been discussing in this past two most recent episodes our choices for some of the best performances and shows of the year. Make sure you catch up on that if you have not yet done so. And speaking of overlooked shows from the end of last year, Station Eleven specifically, do check out our review of that show earlier in December as well in an episode where I was just recommending other science fiction shows that people who were fans, or maybe even disappointed, like I was, by the show The Peripheral, other science fiction shows that were available that may have been overlooked in the past as well. We have already received some feedback from you on some of your favorite shows of the year, and I'll be including some of that content in upcoming episodes, reading your emails. If you do have any shows, maybe regional, because we've gotten some emails from our overseas audience, Maybe there was some local programming that didn't make it to the U.S. or hasn't reached the U.S. yet, or maybe never will, unfortunately. But do shout out any other TV shows, movies, performers that you think didn't get enough attention this year. And we'll share them here on the show. And as usual, you can reach us at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. This is the kickoff of our new season of the podcast, and we will be covering for the next 11 weeks, I guess it would be, Your Honor, The Brian Cranston Show, on Showtime, which had a big premiere, was actually Showtime's biggest premiere for the past few years until immediately afterwards, Yellow Jackets usurped it in the ratings. And not coincidentally, we will segue directly from our Your Honor coverage right into season two of Yellow Jacket. If you're just catching up on that show or need a refresher, do search our feed for two previous episodes where we caught up on the entire season of Yellow Jackets and then discussed it in full with full spoilers, by the way. So do watch the show first in this feed all the way back almost exactly a year ago when we were catching up on those shows. So search our back catalog for Yellow Jackets and you'll find that coverage. And that will be coming in March. Now the trailer is out and it has been announced fully. Speaking of Yellow Jackets and Melanie Linsky, the one of the protagonists in that show, she'll also be showing up in HBO's The Last of Us, which will also be premiering in a couple of weeks, and we will also be covering it here week to week in that same 10-week period along with Your Honor. So we'll be seeing a lot of Melanie Linsky here in the next few months, and do check out early next week. We will have a preview episode for that series as well, this highly anticipated, very expensive HBO adaptation of this very highly regarded video game adaptation. In general, video game adaptations have a very, very bad reputation, but the pedigree on this show is very high, coming from the same creative forces that brought us the truly excellent Chernobyl miniseries a few years ago. So we'll be previewing that show as well as discussing some other post-apocalyptic dystopian science fiction movies that you may want to watch as a little bit of a appetizer before the main course of 
The Last of Us. So that's all coming next week. As for today's episode, I will be recapping season one of Your Honor. By the way, season two is the final season of this show. So if you currently have a Showtime subscription, maybe you got one of these deep discounts for the holidays, as did I, by the way. Do catch up on that show. It is a relatively small investment. And as flawed as season one is, this is my brief review, I am intrigued enough for season two. And also, I like the idea that this is season two and done, that this is all about driving the story to a conclusion. I'm all in favor of that. I do not want one of these never-ending Showtime shows that go on. They should last one or two seasons and go on for five and six and seven and ten seasons. The issues that have plagued shows like Weeds and Shameless and Dexter and you name it, like almost every home, uh, Homeland, almost every Showtime show. Even shorter shows like The Affair, which had a couple of excellent seasons, really just started to meander aimlessly. And I basically quit on all these shows. Maybe they had good endings, but I quit on almost all of them, especially after the terrible finale of Dexter. <laughs> so that's all a big digression to say that I am very on board with the idea of getting some very talented people like Michael Stuhlbard and Brian Cranston for a very limited amount of time, tell a story, one or two seasons, and then be done with it. We'll see how it all plays out. I have not seen any of season two, but we will start to cover that next week. And as I lead up to that, let's discuss season one. Oh, and by the way, stay tuned for the end, towards the end of the episode. I have started to rewatch for the very first time the excellent Breaking Bad. Started with season one in this particular episode. I'll recap all of season one. And what a wonderful experience it is. I actually do recommend, if you'd like to listen along with me, all of Breaking Bad's available on Netflix, if you were not aware, and do dip into some of those earlier episodes. I'll recommend the ones I think you really should rewatch as I go through my rewatch of the show. And that's coming at the end of this episode. All right. With that out of the way, Your Honor is a Showtime show which premiered in 2020, produced during the pandemic. As I mentioned, this got off to a huge start. It was one of Showtime's biggest premieres in a decade or so. Obviously, Cranston's fans were excited to see him as another morally complicated protagonist and returning to TV after the huge success of Breaking Bad. This is based on a Israeli TV show. Many recent TV programs have actually been based on Israeli shows, Homeland, In Treatment, Euphoria, the recent Echo 3, just to name a few. This show was created by Peter Moffat, mostly known as a British playwright and a showrunner of some successful procedurals in the UK. Robert and Michelle King, the producers of The Good Wife and The Good Fight, are also producers on the show and maybe were involved early with the creation of the show. Now, the setup of season one is that we are in New Orleans. This locale is beautifully photographed. I guess it's kind of hard to not use New Orleans in an interesting way. We're introduced to Adam Desiato and his father, Michael. His father is a judge, very well respected, and seems to be in early scenes to take his job seriously and to have a reputation for being a good judge. In a system, by the way, New Orleans, notoriously corrupt. We're introduced to his son, Adam, who is supposed to be 17 years old, but I have to tell you that this actor, who also recently appeared on the Wednesday TV series, hugely successful, by the way, a conversation we have to have here at some point, the phenomena of that series. And in both cases, both of those, he's supposed to be playing much younger than he is. And I have to say that as soon as I saw this actor, and this is maybe my biggest caveat for the entire show or where I had troubles engaging with it, he immediately reads as someone who's in his mid to late 20s. 
college age, minimally. And he's in bed with seemingly an age-appropriate woman. Turns out that in the subsequent scenes, we're supposed to believe that he's actually a teenager, still in high school, only 17 years old. And this woman who really does look approximately exactly his age, and I believe these actors are almost the same age, is actually his teacher, his school teacher. She teaches him photography, which is his passion, and also turned out to be his mother's vocation and passion as well. It is the anniversary, I believe first anniversary of his mother's death, and he decides to go to the scene of her murder, another loose end here that's never developed the cause of her death, to set up a memorial. In parallel, we also we meet Rocco Baxter, seemingly very happily living with his parents, Jimmy and Gina. He's gotten a vintage motorcycle for his birthday and decides to take it out for a drive. These two young men are headed for a literal collision course. After setting up the memorial at the site of his mom's murder, Adam gets frightened by some local men hanging out on the corner. In a panic, he drives away, triggering his asthma, apparently has asthma, triggering an asthma attack. He panics trying to grab his inhaler, and during his distraction, he slams into Rocco on his motorcycle. Rocco survives only briefly. Adam does try to call 911 on Rocco's phone, but does not identify himself. As a matter of fact, he can barely speak given his asthma attack. Importantly, on the way home, he has blood on him from the incident and does stop at a gas station to get some gas in his car. Once he gets home, he tries to cover up the crime. Once his father arrives, he fills him in on what's occurred. His dad wants him to do the right thing and says, it was an accident. You're still underage. We can take care of this. But once they arrive at the police station, Cranston, playing Michael, recognizes the parents as the local mafia kingpin and his wife. And he makes a knee-jerk decision to cover up the crime. And that is the setup of our season. Will he get away with it? And what will be the consequences? Turns out the consequences are indeed dire for almost everybody in this show. In episode two, Michael asks Charlie Figaro, played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr. from The Wire, if he can do him a favor. Charlie is a politician and a power broker. He has connections at every level of the local community. And Michael asks Charlie, can he make his car disappear? Charlie has some love for Adam. I believe he's actually his godfather in this show. Charlie puts out a request to see if anyone's willing to disappear this car. And it turns out that Kofi Jones, who is a member of a local street gang called Desire, is assigned the task. Kofi does indeed do as told. He finds the car, he finds the key, and he drives it away. Over the course of the workday, Michael reports the car stolen, saying that it was stolen, of course, before the hit and run. This is all part of their cover-up. He is indeed friendly with a lot of the local cops, and they decide to do Michael the favor of taking this car theft seriously. And Michael is unable to slow the roll of these detectives. Of course, as you would expect, he does not give Kofi enough time to get away with the car, and he is arrested at this moment simply for stealing the car. Before the workday's even done, they inform Michael that, don't worry, we found your car. As he's retrieving it from the impound, part of the motorcycle falls out from under the chassis of the car. And of course, the investigation now spins out. Once they identify the motorcycle piece and match it to Rocco's motorcycle, suddenly Kofi's in much hotter water. Michael tries to dampen this down by getting a friend of his, Lee, who he seems to have been a mentor to and had a long ongoing flirtation with her, unrequited until this moment, and tries to recruit her to represent Kofi in court. Michael starts to panic and wants to get more details from Adam and is upset to hear his retelling and realize that many other witnesses may be out there. 
In episode three, Adam begins to fall apart here, and he starts to now stalk the scene of the crime, taking photographs, and starts to run into some of Rocco's friends and family. This is worrying to Michael, who in the background is trying to do his best to derail the investigation without drawing too much attention to himself. We've also, between these two episodes, been introduced to Carlo Baxter, Rocco's brother, who against the wishes of his dad has started to sell fentanyl, which has brought him into the orbit of this street gang desire. He's been arrested, but is allowed to attend Rocco's funeral. At the funeral, he runs into his mother, who gives him instructions to kill Kofi. Michael is trying to protect Kofi as best he can. Meanwhile, Lee is able to have him released due to lack of evidence, as well as the abuse by the hands of the cops during his questioning. The night that Kofi is to be released, he goes to set things straight with Carlo. And unfortunately, Carlo beats him to death. Meanwhile, Adam has decided to tell Franny, his girlfriend and teacher, that he's the one responsible for the hit and run. In episode four, Michael and Lee go to Kofi's mother's house. Meanwhile, at the Baxter house, Gina, played by Hope Davis, pushes Jimmy to do more to avenge Rocco. She wants to have a full-on gang war with this desire street gang. Meanwhile, their daughter, Sophia, upset with Rocco's death and Carlo's incarceration, has told her family that she no longer believes in God. This is very upsetting to the mom for some reason. Lee and Michael have begun dating. Adam continues to spin out at school. He's gotten into a fight with his friends. He's suspended temporarily. And Franny's actually afraid that he's going to reveal their relationship. He's so emotionally raw at this moment. And this is where, once again, something that seems to be leading to a much bigger plot point, Margot Martindale shows up as Charlie's grandmother to check in on him and just find out what's going on with the family. This is on the anniversary of the mom's death, death the official anniversary. This is a bizarre dinner where everybody <laughs> who has stake in this crime is all at one dinner table at once. We have the police investigator. We have his friend, Charlie. We have Lee, who he started a relationship with, the mother-in-law, and is obviously strained between Michael and Adam. All of this is pretty much covered up by the fact that this is indeed the anniversary of the mother's death. And apparently this stolen car was involved in this crime. So still believable at this point. And meanwhile, Kofi's mother's house get blown up. She dies, but Kofi's younger brother does survive. And here is the escalation that Gina wanted. In episode five, here we are halfway through the season. Michael during court starts getting phone calls from an anonymous caller who seems to have evidence of Adam's involvements in the killing of Rocco. Carlo gets released from prison temporarily, although he is going to go to trial for the murder. During the wake for Kofi's mother, the gang tries to recruit the younger brother. Adam begins a relationship with Sophia. Really bad idea, by the way. Not only cheating on his girlfriend slash teacher, who knows his secret, but getting way too close to the center of this white hot situation. Lee wants to do an autopsy on Kofi's body to prove that this was a murder and not self-defense, as Carlo is attesting. Gina and Jimmy are doing their own investigation. In hearing the audio recording of Adam's voice on that 911 call, honestly, I don't remember how this happens, but they are checking security cameras for gas stations in the area and somehow stumble upon the same video recording that Michael has as well. He has suspected that his blackmailer witnessed Adam at that gas station. And in canvassing gas stations, they've also located the same gas station and seen the same video. So the news tightens around Michael. And this all culminates. Michael is closing in on his blackmailer. Meanwhile, Jimmy Baxter is no dummy 
and he immediately starts to snoop around Michael's house and pretty quickly realizes that Kofi is not indeed responsible for this hit and run. This is maybe the first thematically interesting point we'll bring up here. What is in front of everybody's face, that Michael and the son are responsible for this hit and run, is a scenario that never gets played out in anyone's mind because there is all this obfuscation that they are the wrong type of people. He has a respectable job. So of course he didn't do it. But Michael is a gangster, and he has dealt with many people, high up, powerful people, who are all corrupt. So he simply connects the dots and says, this car was involved with the hit and run. Let's go check out what those people were doing on that day. So pretty quickly, they both end up in the same place. Michael is trying to track down his blackmailer. Meanwhile, Frankie and Jimmy are simply tailing Michael. They almost kill him right in front of his house, but are interrupted by Adam and Sophia. And this is when Jimmy realizes that this new boy that Sophia has been dating is Adam. How perverse is this situation? And the episode wraps up. Jimmy and Frankie have run into Michael right as he's meeting with his blackmailer. Michael thinks he doesn't have to kill this guy. He can give him the money he wants for this boat, which is really what he really wants, but could pay it in installments so that if at any time he talks, he's going to pull the plug on that. And the guy seems to be pretty happy. He's like, hey, I get my boat. That's all I care about. Well, this guy ends up dead, which resolves a problem for Michael, but much bigger problem. He now is in the crosshairs of Jimmy Baxter and his henchmen. But of course, we know he's not going to die because we're only a little more than halfway through the show. In the meantime, the investigation for Carlo seems to get worse and worse. Now, another interesting point here, this is such a convoluted plot, but just something to bring up. It is interesting to think that if Gina had not been so rash and had Carlo do the murder in prison, that basically at this moment, the only reason they do not kill Michael is because they need him to help them fix this case so that Carlo does not go to jail for the murder of Kofi. If that murder had not occurred in the jail cell, then Carlo would not currently be on the hook. And they could basically just dispatch with Michael and theoretically Adam, although they probably would not make the connection to Adam yet. But just to speak that they've muddied the water themselves, they've created this own scenario where they need Michael, supposedly their enemy here, his assistance in keeping Carlo out of prison. He lets them know that they're about to arrest Carlo. You gotta go get him. This is a temporary reprieve for Michael, as I mentioned, but it does mean that Michael and Frankie are left behind to dispose of Trevor's body while Jimmy tries to warn his son of his arrest. This also makes Nancy suspicious. How did they know that the arrest was coming? Michael makes promises he probably cannot keep that he is going to become the judge on the case and that he will be able to manipulate the system and protect Carlo. Michael is indeed assigned to the preliminary case. Since he's connected, tangentially, they think, to this murder. They don't realize how deeply involved he is. But the murder case is actually assigned to a different judge, Judge LeBlanc. Michael takes Judge LeBlanc out for drinks, gets her drunk in celebration, and then drops a dime on her to have her arrested for drunk driving. This gets her taken off the case, and he ends up inheriting it. I'm not sure that's how that would work. <laughs> but maybe there's only two judges in New Orleans. Who knows? Adam finds out that he's going. he's been accepted to NYU but tells Franny that he has not. I guess he's not planning to leave after all. Jimmy's getting frustrated, but still needs Michael on the case, but basically tells him if things don't go his way, there's going to be severe consequences. This uncomfortable conversation between Michael and Jimmy happens at the dinner celebrating the NYU acceptance, but Adam seems to have other plans. Meanwhile, Franny has discovered that Adam and Fia are in a relationship, and one more threat that this secret can might be revealed. All right, we're approaching the end now. The Baxters are looking for Joey, Carlo's friend. Joey's actually played by Chet Hanks, for those who don't know. Chet is Tom Hanks' son with Rita Wilson and a would-be rapper 
and I guess sometimes actor. And he's pretty good here in a very limited role, playing himself practically, <laughs> but still, there's something to be said for that. Maybe he's got a future as an actor after all. He's been holed up getting high, and the Baxters are after him, and he's afraid that he knows too much. So he agrees to testify against Carlo once he escapes. Now we find out a little bit of something that, once again, goes unexplored here, seems to be very important to the plot, even as it's introduced at the beginning, and doesn't really pay off here at the end. We discover that Michael's wife, Nancy, was having an affair. Adam wasn't aware of this either. Was this why she was murdered? Unanswered at this point. And honestly, I can't imagine how it could tie into season two. It would be very interesting if they could somehow tie up all these loose ends into one story. That, very importantly, would have to be satisfying and not just completely arbitrary facts squished together. Will, that remains to be seen. But this seems to be very important to the plot. I originally thought that maybe Cranston had murdered her because he was so good at creating alibis and covering up for his son's indiscretions that maybe he had had to do this himself in covering up the mother's murder. But that does not seem to be anything related to the story here. And I can't imagine that that would be revealed in season two to any satisfying point. But all remains to be seen. In the courtroom, Michael has allowed Joey to testify against Carlo. This makes Jimmy very angry. But it turns out that Michael has actually spiked Joey's drink with some pills and has an episode while on the stand. Lee, still in pursuing her case, has discovered that Kofi could not have been involved in the hit and run. And meanwhile, Charlie who's trying to protect Adam, thinks that Franny is trying to put the screws to him, only to discover during their conversation that he's actually dating Sophia. Once again, terrible idea. In the season finale of season one, just called part 10, by the way, all these episodes, part one, part two, etc., part 10, Adam finds out about his mother's affair via his grandmother. Lee meets with the head of the Desire Gang and lets her know that Kofi did not kill Rocco. Carlo finally takes the stand and makes an impassioned testimonial that Kofi was there to kill him, and this was all self-defense. A lie, of course, but convincing one. But Carlo's story is disproven by the facts of the way that the gates work, the doors work at the prison, and that the door was open the whole entire time. Charlie lets Michael know that he knows that Adam was involved in the killing of Rocco. At this point, Lee and Charlie both know that Adam was the killer in the hit and run, as do the Baxters, although they may still believe it was Michael, but I think they're starting to understand what actually happened. And Nancy's pretty confident too. So it seems like the cat is almost completely out of the bag. Despite all the evidence that this was premeditated murder, the jury does indeed find Carlo not guilty due to self-defense. And Michael does not let Kofi's younger brother testify. He goes and gets a gun, Eugene, this younger brother, and shows up at Carlo's celebratory party. This is a tense finale, final sequence where Michael is desperately trying to get into the party. He is sweaty. He's been running across town. And while he is fighting with the security detail, Eugene is able to sneak into the party and attempts to shoot and kill Carlo, but misses and hits Adam in the neck. And the show ends with this operatic final sequence where Michael is trying to apply pressure. Adam is dying, blood bleeding out from his neck. I assume he dies here. I haven't sussed out from the preview whether Adam died or just was seriously injured, but I assume they kill off Adam here. And then there's a look that passes between Michael Stuhlbard playing Jimmy and Cranston playing Michael, where there is some kind of karmic balance here in another son for a son. So where does that leave things for season two? First, I'll tell you the things I'm most critical of here in the show. I have to say that the actor playing the son, I really dislike this performance. And so much of this is because of the casting. Here is 
this 25, 27-year-old approximately actor playing a 17-year-old who's the child, by the way, in real life of a professional tennis player. So he looks like a basketball player, basically. If he had been cast as someone who looked like a underdeveloped 17-year-old, then this nerdy dweebishness that he's supposed to be portraying would make a little more sense. His panic when confronted with these group of imposing-looking kids in this New Orleans neighborhood might be more convincing. Basically, we'd have a lot more sympathy for him, and we would also find the relationship with his teacher more disturbing instead of them looking like they are approximately exactly the same age, which they actually are, the actors, that is. And he's this hulking guy then who, who for some reason, can't keep his stuff together. It just gives us a lot less sympathy for this character, in my opinion. And that just rubbed me the wrong way. The casting is such a big part of it. It's not even the performance. It's just the casting. Like when you have someone who, to your eyes, looks like they're nearly 30 years old (laughs) and is running around like a scared little child. If he looked like a little child, which he is, then there would be a lot more sympathy from me anyway. And that one thing is this detail that really frustrated me in the show. Sona will discuss uh, in her conversation coming up some of the legal logistics that honestly were lost on me because I'm not familiar with the law. So some of these inconsistencies that she found most distracting, I didn't even pick up on because once again, I'm a lay person and I'm sure most people of you out there listening are also. I did find the suspense really strong here and most of the plotting works out. There's some convenience plotting here. There's some idiotic mistakes that characters make in not seeing what's right in front of their face. But I think that's okay too, because thematically, I think that's the point. Innocent bystander who knows nothing, who doesn't know these people would simply say, well, maybe they did it <laughs> on page one. And um, But the, the whole point is that they're acting in plain sight. It's about privilege, basically. So it's like they're acting in plain sight and everybody's just giving them the benefit of the doubt because they're the right kind of people. So that is an interesting theme here in the show. And also, I would say another issue I have is that the show is a little too uh, long. I think that at seven or eight episodes, some of these completely undeveloped plot points that they introduce, for example, the affair, the murder of the mother, that's a huge plot point. She could just be divorced. She could have died of cancer. She could just disappear off the show for no reason. But they've made this point that she was murdered. And this seems to be an important plot point in the show. And maybe because of COVID or whatever, they could not fully develop that plot line. And that's not the only one. There's other characters that show up who hint at some backstory and it is not developed here. Maybe to be developed in season two. So possibly there could be some clever payoff for some of these loose threads. Um, At this moment in season one, I feel like they were there almost incidentally or even accidentally. But I do like the central dynamic between Michael Stuhlbard and Brian Cranston. And I honestly think that's the reason the show came back at all, is to develop that tension between the two of them. So with the recap of season one out of the way, I am interested in season two. But let's get into my discussion with Sona regarding this first season of the show. And then my rewatch of Breaking Bad and some of the observations I made there as well. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and come back next week where we will be discussing the first episode of season two of Your Honor, simply called part 11. All right. So before we get into the Breaking Bad conversation, just trying to recap the show, I got so caught up in the weeds with these little plot deals that I had completely forgotten because I really just want to circle in on the finale, which ends up being this strangely operatic conflation of things where Kofi's younger brother in attempting to kill Carlo at this party to celebrate his not guilty verdict, 
accidentally kills uh, Adam instead. I mean, it's not even clear that he killed them, although I'm pretty sure he's dead. But they do leave things open enough where, you know, he's just holding pressure on his neck. And Cranston, of course, is freaking out seeing his, his son's life bleeding out of him. Although I am pretty certain they did kill the son because, of course, by the end of the season, the Baxters know Adam was the driver in the hit and run. So in some strange sort of way, they've gotten their com- karmic retribution by Adam dying here at the end. Mm-hmm. So the circle is kind of closed, although, of course, the circle is not closed between the Baxters and Kofi's right. brother or the retaliation that the whole gang may bring upon them. And then all these people are still implicated in this. So they all have their careers on the line here, whether it is the politicians involved or whether it's uh, Cranston, who I'm pretty sure is not going to be a judge in the next season, I, you know, <laughs> given the circumstance of what played out in this show. As I was trying to get to that end point in the show, I just got caught in the weeds with all of these other plot details. And I think that's the, my, the limitation of the show is some of my frustration with all these red herrings that didn't pay off in interesting ways. But I have to tell you, I binged this show and I enjoyed it in a very trashy way. So I think I expected this to be a more serious show, maybe because of Cranston's involvement. And I found it to be very soapy, like very heightened and even silly, although it takes itself seriously. So it does make the suspense works because of that. But it that's not a, a complex show. But I really felt like there were so many interesting ideas that could have been developed in a more serious way. That's why I'm committed to watching season two. I'm hoping that it can explore some of these ideas in more interesting ways, even though maybe it didn't succeed <laughs> in season one so much. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I watched it all the way through. I do think they did a good job of manufacturing some really tense moments, mm-hmm. regardless of some plot holes that I can't quite enumerate now. So much time has elapsed, but I know there were things that did not necessarily connect that happened yeah. now. But um, <laughs> one thing that I find often with shows set in New Orleans or in Louisiana is like they just convey that sense of place so well. The mm-hmm. idea that it's yeah. like it's hot, it's humid, people are sweating. Um, <laughs> and there's something about that that I personally really enjoy for some reason. I just think it does a really good job at conveying that type of atmosphere. And there's something that I really like about that. But I do wonder how much of this was carried on the skill of Brian Cranston. Yes. Mm -hmm. Would we have watched this all the way through if it were a different actor who was not as talented or as renowned or, you know, because you buy a lot of credibility, I think, at this point, when you cast Brian Cranston in something. So it is his skill in the first season, as well as the possibility that in season two, he's going to have some kind of clever mousetrap set for the people around him, very much leaning into what is appealing about Breaking Bad also. And secondly, I would say, I think about, you know, these are all very good performers in this show, but I think about also Michael Stuhlbard playing his role. One of the things that's most memorable images to me when I think about the show is when he is inside of Cranston's house. Uh, that first time just investigating on his own, but also just like using the kitchen. And it's this predatory uh, incursion to someone's house, even though they don't know that Mm -hmm. he's there. Mm -hmm. But I just love that so much because it kind of said so much about his character. And he's an interesting character, even though he's not written necessarily in a very interesting way. I like how he's the one who's like reluctant to use violence. But at the same time, of course, he is 
a you know serial killer basically. So he just seems to will wait for his opportunity rather than maybe being overly rash. And that's why he has been successful and why he hasn't been caught before. Whereas the people around him do screw up and get caught. But I found him to be a really interesting character. So the idea of these two against each other in season two is definitely the hook because I thought the show itself as defined and, and created. And by the way, this is based on an Israeli TV series, as was the Americans, as so many of these shows recently are have been based on um, Israeli TV shows. Euphoria, another one, just one more of these shows that have been based on these Israeli shows. So I don't know if maybe the translation was too literal from the Israeli show, or maybe um, there's something that was lost in translation here. There's something awkward about its plotting. And here's my theory, by the way, Sona. I also believe that this show premiered in December 2020. This definitely was a COVID show, and they even addressed COVID in the show itself. And yeah. I have a feeling that a lot of these weird plot holes and undeveloped issues may be COVID-related because they simply could not develop some of these um, storylines because all of a sudden you have to shoot things in very limited ways. You can only have two people on, you know, in a scene together. And I think a lot of the stuff that maybe the plot would have developed some of these other strands more fully if they hadn't had these constraints. And maybe some of that will still develop in this season too, because the show seemed to have a lot of loose threads all the way up until like episode nine. And then we literally have, I think in episode nine or maybe eight, where the teacher reveals to Isaiah Whitlock's character that she's been having the affair with the son. And this seems to, once again, still seem like there might be some kind of blackmail aspect to this or whatever. And then Adam is dead. <laughs> I'm like, what? what, what? <laughs> yes, maybe. But I will say, as an attorney, one thing that really rubbed me the wrong way was how he got that case assigned to him. Mm -hmm. What judge gets assigned to your case is a very sensitive topic, right? Because right. that is something that we don't want anyone to be able to control for, I think, obvious reasons of different you know, biases that might exist, different connections that right. people might have to certain issues. I don't know if they do it this way anymore, but I know when I began practicing a very long time ago, at least here in New York, I don't remember if it was a wheel you would spin or like a bingo machine type thing, but like it was literally like a random generator of right. the judge. And I am sure that it is still the same way that the judge is randomly generated. So the idea, I mean, obviously there is a lot of corruption in all of our systems and Louisiana is renowned as a place that has a lot of corruption. Right, right. So I guess it's not completely unbelievable, but just um, the fact that there was no acknowledgement of the fact that it should have been a randomly assigned judge, at least that I can recall, it just um, annoyed me, but probably not as big a pet peeve for a non-attorney. That's what exactly what I was going to say. Uh, you mentioned to me as a caveat when I started to watch this that I may not be able to handle all the plot holes in it. And it's very funny because for me, because I don't know the law that well, I bought some of this stuff and just assumed, well, they must have some kind of legal, <laughs> they must have some kind of legal consultation. So these things are probably somewhat accurate. Uh, and I just assumed that. Uh, and I let it, it, those things did not bother me because I felt that even the most outlandish plot points in the story were actually motivated for the most part. Uh, mm -hmm. And then when you were saying there's all these uh, unconvincing things that happen, I was a little surprised by that because I'm like, well, this isn't as bad as some of the things we've watched, actually. <laughs> but uh, I was not thinking from a legal perspective because that's what my wife does also. You know, she watched 
the good mm-hmm. nurse, for example, with me. And like across the board, she's like, well, that would never happen. She's making the wrong diagnosis. <laughs> like, you know, even though that's based on true story, apparently their medical consultant was not very good because there's apparently a lot of factual errors just in the way they, the terminology they use. I assume that is often the case with shows that, for example, when it comes to legal stuff, it's just very hand wavy, like good enough. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> so maybe bothered me more than it would bother right. the average person. That's a fair point. But um, yeah, for me, you know, once again, because I was ignorant to it, it didn't bother me that much. And the stuff that I usually really get annoyed with where people do completely preposterous, make completely preposterous decisions, even with the, you know, once the basics are out of the way, it seemed to, for me, it seemed pretty rational. My big complaint with the, the show is just how sloppy the plotting is where, you know, it would have some very tense episodes and then they would introduce a bunch of stuff that would be just purely red herrings in the next episode and just let the tension really slack. And mm-hmm. at, ten, at 10 episodes, it just seemed like the show was way too long. It just didn't seem to need. Yeah, so I agree. I'm still curious. Like I said, because of that, those that duo, that core duo, I'm very curious to see them face off in the next season. And we'll know soon enough. It starts next week. All right. Sona, also, as part of this, I had mentioned that I am going to rewatch Breaking Bad. And of all the things that this project can possibly do, rewatching Breaking Bad was such a really fun experience for me. I have never rewatched the show and just mm-hmm. re-experiencing it from, from the start and also reappreciating things. My general impression, I've said this on the podcast before, was that season one of Breaking Bad was just good enough where I was curious to see the second season. I wasn't even that vested in it. And then when season two came back, I think it came back in the summertime. There was like nothing else on the air. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'll watch this show. There's not that much. This is before this onslaught of content. <laughs> if it was today, maybe I never would have come back for season two, but I watched season two and I liked it, liked it more than season one, but didn't love it, wasn't in love with the show. But I think over the course of season three and then season four, of course, which is like incredible season of television. And then of course it even got better after that for me anyway. So it's the very, very rare show that literally for me got better as it went along. Mm-hmm. In re- rewatching season one, I rewatched the entirety of season one, which is only six episodes, seven episodes. So it was relatively easy to watch this first season on Netflix, by the way. I turned out like appreciating it, I think, way more than I did the first time around. Interesting. In the pilot episode, because here's the thing I usually really don't like pilots, and I don't remember being blown away by this particular pilot, but it seems like they've done such a great job in the show of tying back to that episode one. So for example, you see Walter at the very beginning making that in the teaser, basically for the pilot, making that video recording as he hears the sirens coming. And he says, if anyone finds this video, I did this for my family. And it's so interesting that that video, that recording echoes into so many themes that come out in the, in the, the final episode he admits finally that this wasn't all about his family. And there's all these other little fascinating details in season one. Also in the fact that after seeing this video saying, I just did this for my family, you now go and watch the episode, which comes you know, after that teaser moment. And instead what you realize is that, which I was not my memory of this at all, by the way, that Walter is very interested in Hank and the the meth business before he finds out that he has cancer. It's just that once he finds out he has the cancer, it's as if he is unleashed, right? And uh, this even happens where uh, Jesse, I think in season episode two, mentions to him, uh, you know, why? Why are you doing this? And he, of course, hasn't confessed to anyone at that point that he has cancer, but he simply says, but he's like, my eyes are open. He says, my eyes are open. Having this death sentence has allowed him to be his true self in a way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, Now or never. 
Right. And in my recollection of the show, it was like, well, the text is that he's doing this for his family. He needs to get that nest egg. And then finally, at the end, he's like comes to terms with it. And then mm-hmm. in rewatching the pilot episode, I'm like, man, it's all there in the pilot. Like they really. really so I, I was really, really impressed. So I like re-ranked these episodes, by the way. And uh, I gave this an eight and a half or nine, basically, you know, on a scale mm-hmm. of one to ten. And I said, that's on Breaking Bad scale, like, you know, 10 being like the best Breaking Bad episodes yeah. ever. Instead of being like, oh, pilots are terrible. Usually this was a um, essential watch. Basically, this is like, you know, in the top 10 or 15 percent of all the Breaking Bad episodes. But I also wrote down that on the scale of pilot episodes, which I hate pilots. I can never judge a show on pilots because 90 percent of the time I can't stand the first episode of a show. I gave this like a 10 out of 10 because I'm like, this is as good as it gets from a pilot perspective. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as you're saying it, I'm not sure if I've ever seen the pilot of Breaking Bad. Oh my God, you should really watch it, especially, I would say, if nothing else, just rewatch that first episode. It's really incredible when you watch that episode mm-hmm. to realize so much. The seeds of, are there. The seeds are all planted there. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Some other um, notes I took. I was really impressed at how they introduced all the characters here. You see Walt waking up early in the morning. This is before he knows that he has a cancer diagnosis. You see him looking at this Nobel placard on the wall, you know, that he's done uh, work for it. So you kind of see the prestige that he had potentially in his career. And now that he's just, you know, a high school teacher teaching these board students, as I mentioned before, all the questions he has for Hank about the meth business, this is before he finds out he has cancer. So he's already very curious about this. It's like, Hey, it's chemistry. So he's interested in it and uh, curious about it. And of course, interested in the business as well already. I forgot that Skylar was trying to write. This is what she's doing while she's on her maternity sabbatical. Oh, I forgot that too. She mentions it a couple of times in this season. Oh, and another thing I forgot is in my original impressions of Hank as a character, I thought the show was going to be this glorification of criminals that you see in a lot of these type of shows with a little bit of supposed substance to you know examining why people break bad, for example. And Hank was this stereotypical blowhard douchey character and he's trying so hard to be so macho and such a stereotype of you know macho cliches and i remember how abrasive that character was to me and then what i'm realizing in retrospect once again how brilliantly this is that the reason the performance feels so artificial is because hank is someone who's performing this masculinity right mm. and it's just so and once again it's right there from the beginning so later you know, in the show we really don't see him have those kind of crisis of conscience until later in season three, perhaps, but it's already there seated in his performance so early on. So just that that the creators of the show really knew who these characters were at such an early point. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a show too, that we're just talking about plot holes. This is such a meticulously plotted show. I feel Mm -hmm. like they make sure to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and everything is explained and very good at planting seeds of things that will come up later and, you know, callbacks to things. So all of that adds up with what the show is from my experience, but I just don't have a vivid memory of season one, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Once again, probably the season I paid the least attention to originally. And in retrospect, if I have revisited any of these scenes here and there, uh, when my wife was catching up on the show years afterwards, I think it was the year of the finale. She was finally catching up on it. And I would dip in, like, you know, if I was walking in and there was a certain episode or a certain scene, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would definitely like tune in for that. Never, 
even bothered to rewatch any of season one with her. So, it, you know, it, this is a really uh, fulfilling for me. Okay, episode two is called Cats in the Bag. You know, when you let the cat out of the bag, you're revealing a secret. So the cat's still in the bag, (laughs) I guess, in this metaphor. I'm surprised at how much comedy was here in the show. I mean, I know that had comedy to it, but this is overt comedy, which was kind of surprising to me. This is when, you know, they've uh, escaped, uh, just to set that up, because I didn't even get into the details of it. Jesse, incompetent as he is, has told Crazy Eight that he's got this really pure meth that he's cooked with Walt. He takes him to the Winnebago in the in the desert. Walt causes a chemical reaction that poisons the two guys while he holds his breath and eventually they're in gas masks driving away from the scene of the crime <laughs> or driving the scene of the crime around with them. Mm-hmm. Crazy Eight and um, Emilio are knocked out by this gas. Emilio dies, but Crazy Eight survives. So in episode two, he has to basically tell Jesse, you got to take care of this. Uh, keep an eye on Crazy Eight, and I'm going to go home to my family like nothing's happened. Uh, this is very funny. It's after school. He's driving home, and Crazy Eight has escaped. He's wandering down the street, like still completely out of his mind from being uh, poisoned. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found this very funny that he just grabs Crazy Eight and throws him in the trunk of his uh, Prius and drives away. And I'm like, <laughs> where is where is the neighborhood watch? Like, no one even got a license plate number? What is happening here? Uh, I also found it very funny when they flip the coin. Jesse's very adamant about the flipping of the coin and who gets what job here. One has to dissolve Emilio's body and the other one has to um, kill Crazy Eight. Walt is trying to calm himself down. So he tries to roll himself a joint. He does, he's out of practice and he like very clumsily fails multiple times before he actually is able to roll the joint and smoke it. But even better than that is when Jesse is shopping for bins <laughs> And he's like trying to fit his body. Oh, into- <laughs> right. I remember this. Yes. Oh my God. It's so funny. He's trying to crawl into them. I don't know if this was improvised by um, the actor, by um, Aaron Paul or not, but oh my God, I laughed out loud. It was just so hilarious. He's trying to find a container that he could curl up into like an appropriate size for this job. And of course the whole thing where Walt will not kill this guy and Jesse's now, you know, done his part of, and he keeps saying, we flipped the coin. <laughs> This is sacred. The flipping of the coin is a sacred thing. <laughs> a touching scene here is when they go with Skylar to get her ultrasound and finds out that it's a girl they're having. He's all excited. He's like, oh, a girl, a girl. I'm so excited. And she goes, oh, yeah, tell me that when she's 16 and she starts dating. And he like breaks down a little bit, of course, because he knows that mm. he will never see her be 16. Yeah. And then maybe the funniest thing that happens is when Jesse, now furious at Walt, basically is dragging this body through the house and dissolving it in the bathtub. Not the bathtub. Don't do it in the bathtub, everybody. And uh, he is just cursing out Walt. He goes, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I've always dreamt of melting bodies. (laughs) (laughs) And Meanwhile, we just have our friend down in the basement. Make sure you feed him three times a day. And then, of course, the punchline of the whole episode when Walt gets home and goes, meanwhile, why were you telling me to get these containers? I could have a perfectly good bathtub. I could dissolve them in. And of course, the acid dissolving through the bathtub and that disgusting, (laughs) liquidy, goopy body smashing down to first floor and completely destroying his entire house. Yikes. So a really, really good episode. So it's so funny, like in such a grim, Mm -hmm, (laughs) so, mm -hmm. so darkly funny. This is definitely high up on my list of, of Breaking Bad episodes in retrospect as well. The uh, next episode was the one where they have to clean up the body, of course. This one's called, by the way, And the Bag's in the River. So it's kind of funny that the cat's in the bag is like, you know, don't let the cat out of the bag, you know, like keep this secret. But now the bag's in the river. If you put cats 
in a bag in a river, that means you're drowning the cats. So once again, not sure where they're going with this metaphor, but that was uh, these two episodes and titles are tied together. Grim. Yes, indeed. (laughs) We see a couple of uh, interesting things here. This is where we find out first that Marie's a kleptomaniac. We find out yet. We, you know, what a random character detail that was. It it? is. I feel like that is maybe, (laughs) and maybe it will pay off when in my rewatch. But that's the one thing that's still, even now remembering it, like in the show, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. That was the first episode of Breaking Bad I ever watched. Oh really? So I had no framework, and I just. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was going to be a much bigger plot point going forward than it ended up being. Yeah. I feel like it only pays off in season one because it's to show that she's a hypocrite in that she judges mm. everybody. It's such a character deal of, detail of hers that everybody's doing something wrong. Everybody, even the, even the most minor infraction is this horrible, glaring issue. And meanwhile, she has her own demons that she's completely like not even willing to deal with or confront. Now, this third episode is not that great, but it features one incredible, incredible long sequence right in the middle of it that I have to draw everyone's attention to because it's so incredible. It is when Marie is convinced by a conversation she has with Skylar because Skylar's asking her about pot and only in regards to one of the characters she's writing about. And of course, Marie, as she always is want to do, she assumes it's about Walt Jr. So she needs... Hank to do an intervention here. And he takes Walt Jr. to this hotel where Wendy is getting a root beer. When Wendy, the prostitute, <laughs> is grabbing a root beer. And he says, hey, you want to live here? You like this place? <laughs> and Walt Jr. is like, uh, no. <laughs> and then he has Wendy come over to the window and be like, go over to my friend's side and tell him how you got started doing this. She's like, huh, what? And she goes, hey, is there something wrong with you? And then Hank <laughs> says, he's a football player. He's the quarterback. He just got injured on the field. And he goes, but tell him how you got started with this. What do you mean how I got started with this? And he goes, tell him how you started with pot. And she goes, why, why? you got some? <laughs> and, then Hank, and then Hank is finally like, get the hell out of here. And, and then he turns to Walt Jr. and goes, what do you think? And Walt Jr. goes, cool. <laughs> so completely missing the point. But then the best payoff is that Wendy goes up and you think like this is just like a like little vignette has nothing to do with the rest of the plot. She goes back to her hotel room and Aaron Paul is there. <laughs> Jesse's there like for a hookup and he's totally paranoid. And he's like, what do they want? What do they want? <laughs> and she goes, just some DA agent and some quarterback messing with me. But I think they just wanted some pot. <laughs> And then Jesse and her start having sex and she goes, oh, damn, I forgot my root beer. <laughs> uh, this whole episode's worth it just for this whole, it's like so protracted. You're like, where's this going? It's going, not going anywhere. It's just hilarious. <laughs> this like 10 minute sequence of one misunderstanding after another. Also important here, uh, you know, uh, plot wise, they're setting things up. These are kind of a little more loose, these middle episodes, but Hank finds out that there's this white meth. It's very pure. There's a new henchman in town. And also mentions that their snitch is dead. So meaning that Crazy Eight was actually a DAA informant. And episode four is where it's called Cancer Man. This is when we discover that Walt has, or he tells everybody that he has cancer. This episode is primarily about Jesse going back to his home. So we see where he came from. We start seeing the ruthlessness in Walt. He actually has this obnoxious guy driving a BMW that he runs into multiple, multiple times around town and eventually blows up his BMW. Do you remember this? By uh, shorting out his battery. I don't remember that. The guy goes into 
a gas station. Walt has just had a fit, like a coughing fit. This is at the very end mm-hmm. of the episode. And he goes to get like the windshield wiper, you know, the, the, the sponge that you can clean your windows with. He walks mm-hmm. over to the guy's convertible, his BMW convertible, pops his hood when he's not looking. And he basically takes the windshield wiper, you know, which has like a metal bar you know, attached to it and uh, presses it against the two heads of the battery, right? To cause a short circuit. And of course it's wet. So it's a, basically arcs the battery and then he slams the hood shut and walks away. Oh, and then the car wow. eventually catches fire and then, you know, he drives away. So it's like his first, the first sign of the uh, Heisenberg, uh, vindictive Heisenberg persona. Mm-hmm. This guy, this guy's just being, I mean, he's a, he's a vocal, annoying jerk, <laughs> but that's about it. Just being a jerk and uh, got his car blown up for it. But maybe the first sign of Walt's darker side. Episode five is called Gray Matter. And this is where we find out his whole story about this startup that he was involved with that he missed out on, right? That these people, and we still don't have all the details of that exactly. We do eventually find out a lot more about how he had this falling out, mostly due to his bruised ego, but these people are now incredibly rich and he's missed the opportunity. They are trying to make amends here saying, look, we'll hire you as an employee. We got great benefits. Mm -hmm. And Walt does not want this. Once again, his ego is so big that he mm-hmm. refuses to accept this charity. He just does not want to be a charity case. And then there's that intervention where the family basically wants him to get this chemo. And he says, I don't know if I want to spend all of our wealth, this nest egg I've amassed on just surviving for another year or two. What's it worth? Although he does eventually decide to get the, the chemo. Next episode is called Crazy Handful of Nothing. And this is the episode that everyone will remember. It's when Walt goes to confront Tuco after Tuco has beaten up Jesse. And he goes and blows up his digs with, uh, what is this, mercury or fulminate, it's mercury fulminate. And this is a memorable, it's like, once again, another time when you see like the badass mm-hmm. Walter White, this is the shaved head, by the way, he's embraced his, you know, as chemo, he started to lose his hair. So he just decided to shave it all off. And this is the first time we see Walt with the black hat and the shaved head and uh, blowing stuff up. <laughs> so- <laughs> This episode is called Crazy Handful of Nothing, which is a reference to Cool Hand Luke when he bluffs in that movie. And in this episode, we see that he bluffs at playing cards with Hank and beats him with a handful of nothing. But of course, at the end, he has a handful of something, <laughs> handful of explosives, and he's able to <laughs> um, make that deal stick. By the way, Tuco had gone and beaten up Jesse for being a distributor. Of course, Jesse was goaded into making bigger sales by Walt saying, we can't this isn't enough money. You can't just sell it to the street. You got to become a distributor, of course, which puts him in his crosshairs with Tuco. But Walt not only gets vengeance for Jesse after visiting him in the hospital, he also um, gets the deal done and creates this uh, relationship with Tuco. And the last episode is called No Rough Stuff Type Deal. We see a couple of really interesting things here. Maybe the most interesting thing that happens is that at the very beginning of this episode, there is a school assembly where everybody's talking about like, oh my God, stuff's been stolen for the chemistry lab. I forgot to mention this, but Hank has tracked down some of this equipment they found out in the desert to the school lab. And of course they are not aware that this is a Walt who's been involved with this. And instead they end up scapegoating this janitor who they cannot find any evidence that he did any of this st- stealing, but they find some pot in his car and they end up throwing the book at him. He loses his job. He even has to go back to jail for a short period of time because he like broke his parole because he'd been arrested previously. And Marie has this very pompous response by going like, well, yeah, what, what do you expect? You know, you do drugs, you, you're not supposed to be working in the school and the teachers at the school are outraged. And it's very interesting that Walt is saying like, this is terrible arresting this guy, but they never tries to do anything to save him. 
And as a matter of fact, when all these parents are going off during this assembly, he starts to like put his hand up Skylar's uh, thigh and getting her, he's basically getting aroused by all of this. And they end up having sex in the car. And she says, why did that feel so good? And he goes, because it was illegal. So once again, selling us a lot about Walter's, Mm -hmm. you know, arousal by this illicit behavior that he's delving into. But it also speaks to the fact that here's some guy who, you know, he talks a good game about how terrible it is what they've they've done this to this janitor, who, by the way, multiple times is helping him clean up after he's vomiting in the bathroom and stuff. And they make a point of showing him here multiple times. And then, of course, he gets scapegoated for this stealing this equipment from the school. And then the plot just moves on because Walt does not care. <laughs> he could talk a good game, but he doesn't care what actually happens to these people. And I think that's very important that they show us this very early. And then the last thing that happens here is that yay science, Walt has made this giant promise of cooking twice as much meth as he originally promised to Tuco. And Jesse's basically ready to leave town because it was, where are we going to get enough pseudoephedrine to make this meth? Mm-hmm. And he decides that, well, you know what? There's something else we can use. And they go to this kind of industrial location where they have chemical vats. They go and they steal one. And of course, using this new precursor is what gives them their very first batch of their 100% pure blue meth, which is their signature, of course, for the rest of the show. Mm-hmm. Tuco's happy. Even though it's weird, it's weird that it's blue, but hey, it's good. So he's happy with the with it. And one of his henchmen mouths off and ends up getting beaten nearly to death. Just the on the punctuation on the season that things seem to be going fine, but there's always danger at every turn. And that's the end of season one. There you have it. And uh, what I thought was really interesting was that exploration of Walt's psychology once again from the very very beginning that he is turned on. <laughs> so you know explicitly by the thrill of this uh, illicit behavior. I just appreciate the consistency in the character development there, because I think so often uh, just in service of the plot, sometimes characters change who they are uh, in a way that's different from the way people as human beings will evolve over time. And, you know, I'm not saying anyone has to stay exactly the same, but sometimes things, uh, characters, qualities change it seems just to kind of keep the storyline going so here it's nice that it's consistent yeah it's interesting also to think about the audience reaction to this character that at first this was a very niche show became so massively popular and um, you still hear it now the view that everyone's like why is everyone messing up (laughs) you know Walt's plan and it's just like he's killing people innocent people. And of course, not even to speak of all the people who are dying of the drugs that he's cooking up. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost as if what's more interesting about the show is the audience's reaction to aligning themselves with this criminal rather than is his, some transformation he goes through. To your point, it's like he's consistently this person from the very beginning. It's just mm-hmm. that the lengths he'll go to <laughs> It's like a slippery slope where he's like, well, I've killed one person. I guess I could kill another one. And then it goes on and on. on. That is actually, once again, speaking of killing somebody, when he does kill Crazy Eight and Crazy Eight, you know, would have killed him. And, you know, (laughs) there's a very funny scene all the way back in that episode two or three, whenever it happens to be, where he writes down all the reasons he should not kill uh, Crazy Eight and all the reasons he should. (laughs) And he goes down as like, it's morally the wrong thing to do. Uh, You know, he's just going down the list of all these things, you know, uh, a hundred reasons why he should not do it. And then on the reasons he should do it, he goes, if you let him go, 
he'll kill you and your entire family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's, I remember she's a that. Pretty good motivator, to, you know. To, <laughs> so that's the only reason you actually need <laughs> to to do that. It, even when he kills him, finally he actually apologizes. He uh, to his body, to his corpse afterwards, and he's crying. He's very upset. But of course, you see him become a much more ruthless killer over the course of the show. So it's not that it's not he's not capable of it. It's almost like he just acclimates himself to it a little bit at a time. And I think that's the transformation you see primarily in, in the show. But yeah, so fascinating to rewatch this and reappreciate some of these things and uh, how beautifully it's all laid out here, even in the early stages where I had said season one, I may still end up in this rewatch thinking that season one is the worst of the shows or the worst of the seasons of the show, I should say. But if that's the case, this would be a very, very high watermark for that because I Mm -hmm. found this to be much better than I remember it being. And just like these completely forgotten little moments, like the absolutely hilarious sequence there, you know, at the hourly rate hotel, (laughs) that whole, you know, one those conversations just like one misunderstood conversation after another. I just found it perfect comic timing for that whole entire sequence. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So give it a sample. I would definitely, for you, Sona, I would definitely say check out episode one again. I think you'll be surprised at how much is already there to start. Yeah, I feel like pilot episodes are very hit or miss, but it sounds mm-hmm. like this one was a hit. I, and it's so funny because I would have said this was one of those shows that didn't have a great pilot and they got better. And I like The Wire is a perfect example of this, a first episode that throws you headfirst into this world. And it works that way. But once I've seen the show, I don't need to go back to that first episode because I'm already inside the world. I can watch any other episode and get a better feel for it. And uh, as opposed to this, where you know, I'm watching that pilot episode of this, and I'm like, oh, no, this is like telling me thematically what the show's about, right, right out mm-hmm. of the gate. So pretty, pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, because I think you know, so many shows, we've talked about this before, it kind of feels like they even start a mystery sometimes without knowing. Right. Like it's a murder mystery and they haven't figured out who did it yet. You know, yep. it feels like they're working it out as they go along. So impressive to have such an arc so well thought out. Yeah, I agree. It seems like they had like a very specific thematic destination in, in mind and they like laid all that there. And like I mentioned, even when you think about the character like Hank, so well defined early on, a character that I found so irritating early on in the show, like may, probably my least favorite character in that season one, because he seemed like such a caricature. And then of course, whether that's by design or uh, something they found along the way, they're saying, of course, he's a caricature. He's playing a part, like in his life, he's playing mm-hmm. a part, you know? So I thought that was pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah. So very rewarding. I will talk to you next week. Well, cool. Have a good weekend and I'll talk to you soon. You too. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye.